Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Welcome to another exciting um, episode of SFP Now. Uh, joining me this week is um, Raisa. Um, we're we're not we've got no Craig this week because basically this is this is a rush recording, so we can actually get it out quite quickly. Um, so Raisa's joining me for this one. How you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. Well, I'm pretty good myself. We've got a really good guest lined up uh, today, and um, it's part of Julian Chambliss's Beyond Impossible series of interviews. Uh, we've actually got Brendan Easton, who's a comic book writer as well as a TV writer. He, he actually wrote an episode of uh, Agent Carter in the last awesome. season, so he he's going to be on 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 the uh, show later on, um, speaking to myself and Julian. So that's that's something to look forward to. It's quite a long interview. I think I, I think it went on. I think we went on for about well over an hour. Mm. So it was actually a pretty good one. Uh, but before we get to that, as always, it's the uh, it's the segment where we uh, discuss all the uh, dirt gossip and the uh, showbiz shenanigans of um, the various different television shows that we've uh, all been watching. Um, and you know what? I think because we're obviously going to touch on the finales of Flash and Arrow, and maybe and, and maybe uh, um, what what is it now? Legends of Tomorrow. Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah. Because we're going to do those, let's do. Let's do the preacher first. Okay, let's. Because um, it's been it's it's been banded around so many different studios. It's been a TV series. It's not been a TV series. It's been a movie. It's been a TV series, and finally we get a TV series. And what's more, it, you know, we we actually get it written in such a way where it's actually quite respectful to the comics. As a non-comics reader, I'm, um, the TV show is going to be my only entry point. So I'm, I'm glad for those of you who have read it that it's, it's as good as it is. I, it's a keeper for me. I decided on the pilot that I was going to stick with it. Uh, here in the U.S., they aired the pilot t- two weeks in a row because of AMC scheduling issues. So next week, the series starts proper. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, here's the even better news. It's going to be on the sips over there, isn't it? I think, yeah. 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 It's also going to be on the sips of June here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because Amazon, I've got it. And um, yes. basically, yes. as soon as it's shown in the States, Amazon will show it. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so, um, I, I enjoyed it. Um, and from what I've heard and what I've been reading, it has been quite respectful to, to the source material. Um, it has deviated on on so, so, some points as as these things um, ordinarily do, but 
not as much as they deviated from from it with uh, Lucifer. Mm, yeah, they had to though, because from from what I read, uh, Preacher as written is a road story, and they just don't have the money for those location shoots. <laughs> So they have to cut corners there and, and sort of limit it for a while at least to to the one location of Anvil. Uh, to be honest, I don't necessarily agree with you with, with road stories, you know, being being a budget because uh, Supernaturals are a different location pretty much every week. Yeah, but all those locations are Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, they're all they're all in Vancouver, granted, but that you know the 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 point I'm making is. That yeah. They're somewhere different each week, each, true, even, even if it's sort of like a bit of set dressing or a bit of CGI to make it look a little bit different. Yeah, yeah and so. and and also in a time when there was less money in television and it cost even less per episode to make, the Incredible Hulk managed it as well. I was going to say that that I was going to bring that up. Yeah, they they could do it. Um, they must they must think they need to spend the money elsewhere then, because mm. for, for for at least a foreseeable they're going to be an anvil. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they're probably going to stay in Anvil for a while to like set up the characters properly. I mean, um, I mean, for me, the most chilling part of that um, that that episode was 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 a speech he made to the kid about violence breeding more violence and it having a knock on effect. Yeah. And, yeah, and stuff like that. But they kind of blew that in a sense because they actually shown quite a significant amount of that in the trailer. Yes. So, yeah. So by the time it came to seeing in the actual episode, it did lose a little bit of its impact. True. True. You know. But Cooper, um, I, I've, I've only known Dominic Cooper from his role as Howard Stark. So this is, it's quite good to, to see that he, he's being given a chance to um, play something really awesome, and he obviously can play it really well based on the pilot. Mm, so I don't. I mean, I've known him as Howard Stark, but I've also seen him as Ian Fleming in the. Uh, Oh, that, yeah, I, saw, I watched a couple episodes of that, yeah. Yeah, you found it quite difficult to watch, though, didn't you? Because he was, you know, because Fleming as portrayed in it was a complete and utter bastard. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, but may, maybe back in the 50s, that that was acceptable behaviour <laughs> for a guy, you know, yeah. for the 40s. Uh, yeah. And, and also... The, the the relationship that that he was having in in that in that series um, was kind of fucked up. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so, you know, he, he, even even by today's standards, it, you know, sort of like it was kind of messed up. Yeah, yeah. But in you know, I thought he was good in that, mm-hmm. um, and he certainly held his own against. Uh, I've forgotten the name of the actress now, but she's pretty well known for playing uh, for playing femme fatales. Ruth Nega? No, not Ruth Nega. No, I'm talking about talking about the Ian Fleming thing. Oh, the other thing. Yes, yeah, I'm I'm blanking now. I, I'm blanking on the name, but he held held his own against her. She's uh, she plays uh, Irene Adler in the Sherlock things. Yeah, and yeah. she also she also played the uh, Vingeness in the final episode, final season of Robin Hood. Mm, okay. Um, and that that was pretty much when she first came onto the scene, but you know he held he held his own he held his own there against against mm-hmm. her. Um, and she's a pretty pretty good actress. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I liked it. Um, I like where it's going. Um, I quite enjoyed Ass Face, although I couldn't understand a word he was bloody saying. Well, they they provided they provided. I don't know about on Amazon, but on the AMC original broadcast that I watched, they provided uh, uh, subtitles. Yeah, I did, I did catch the subtitles, and um, 
you know, it's good job they did that because if they hadn't included the subtitles, I would have struggled to hear what he was saying. Yeah. Um, and, and the subtitles actually, you know, made him sound okay. Yeah. Sort of thing. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't especially like it when they use subtitles a lot of the time. You know, especially in Game of Thrones when when Daenerys is speaking Dothraki or whatever language she's speaking. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like. Um, the the, the the maybe that they should actually do with do you know get have a switch on the television so you can actually you know translate it in, have it translated into bloody english mm. you know if you're dyslexic and yeah. have trouble following subtitles i think it's <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah yeah i get it i get it it's, it's, it's just uh it's just awkward and also probably difficult for someone who's you know partially sighted as well it, i can get them as long as they don't go, go by too quickly it's, it's kind of hard because on the, on the one hand reading subtitles is difficult for me but on the other hand i really really appreciate it um as a lit and history geek when they include actual languages or or made up languages and these things and that's a level of authenticity so i just sort of lump it Mm. And, and and do the best I can. Well, so. I noticed with game the last episode of Game of Thrones, I watched last night. The the subtitles when when she's she's addressing people, they're quite fast. Yes, you know, I you know, I I, I only barely just about catch the gist of it, um, but I'm not able to sort of like read the complete sentences before they change, mm. and it's infuriating. Mm. I'm <laughs> sorry. Um. But looking the ass face was speaking English, it was just sort of like very hard to hear at first. Yeah, yeah. And to, to kind of make made the momentary adjustment. Um, I thought the uh, I thought the scene with Ruth Nager teaching the um, teaching well, the kids awesome. to make bombs was hilarious. That was that's a that was a hell of an entrance. And and after watching her on Agents of Shield again, it's really cool to see a sort of switch up something slightly different. Yeah, well, I thought I thought her character was quite quite good in Agents of Shield because she was quite sneaky. Yes, in in yes. that. Whereas in in this, she's sort of like um, she's kind of gotten past the sneakiness and she's just quite bold and brash. Yeah, and, and you know, mm-hmm. I thought cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I thought I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, but moving on a little bit now to the DC stuff. Um, and then we'll finish up on on Agents of Shield on on Agent Carter. Sorry, as a, as a nice little segue. I think um, um, I think because there are three of them, we should probably discuss them systemically because a lot of the, the they had kind of the same problems. Um, I'm pissed off with the Flash finale. Well, they were, they were building the Flashpoint for two years, so yeah. But he's got he's gone back and saved his mum now, and that's gonna that's gonna be a massive big paradox in the next episode. It's gonna be like a big tank on the wall. It's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be a massive thing. And it's gonna be regressive, but it also shows how how damaged he is in, in the wake of of what Zoom did. Um, I'm actually looking forward to it if for no other reason than we get uh, um, oh uh, Captain Cold as Citizen Cold. Ah, right. Citizen Code. So he's going to be a good guy. Yeah, for a little bit. Mm. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be a way for them to, to bring, um, oh, I'm completely blanking on names. Um, Wentworth Miller into the into the show because he signed that marvelous uh, cross-universe regular contract. Mm-hmm. So that's probably where they're going to bring him in for Flash. Yeah. And that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, one thing I liked about Flash finale was... Um, the the golden age flash. 
Oh my God, John, I know John, I know that from an acting standpoint, from reading articles, John Wesley Shipp preferred playing Henry and wanted to play Henry. But having him, but having him play uh, Jay Garrick, the Jay Garrick, was so awesome. And to see him in that suit, and to see him in an actual decent flash suit, mm. you know, tw- 27 years later, because that original flash suit in the 90s series was awful, gone awful. Uh, and to see him actually... Yeah, but I think in the 90s, it was probably pretty good. Yeah, I, I suppose. But he just, he looked, he looked, he looked like he was in a, in a chunky tank with, mm. with, with uh, lightning bolts on it. It was not, it was not cool. Yeah, but that's kind of what, that's kind of what Batman looked like back then. True, true. <laughs> he was in, in a chunky, cha- chunky tank suit with, with a bat on the chest. <laughs> and, and that's what, that's basically what they were cop- trying to copy in the 90s. Yeah. I, I remember watching Flash and looking forward to it every week in the nineties, even though it was as cheesy as hell. Oh, it was awful, and it was sad because it wasn't the superhero elements that were all god awful. It was the it was the fact that because it was effectively a cop show, and around that you got all of the inane cop tropes of yeah. that era, just sort of on parade, badly written. And you know. Um, and it would also help, you know, I thought the chemistry between between the guy that played Flash and Amanda Pays was really good. Yes, and you and you could see that chemistry when uh, when when Henry uh, and met Dr. Tina briefly before he was killed. Mm-hmm. It was still there, you know, yeah. so. I'm actually hoping that Amanda Pays um, will play Joan Garrick, because if, if we've met, if this is if this is Jay Garrick, I'm hoping that Amanda Pays gets to play Joan Garrick, Earth 3. And just yeah. go whole hog. If they're going to do this, let's do this. You know. Well, I'm I'm basically hoping that they bring Jay Garrett back. Um, I mean, one of the things, one of the problems I had with the with the uh, Jay Garrett that turned out to be Zoom was that it was obvious that he was going to turn out to not be Jay Garrick. Because let's face it, Jay Garrick in the comics is around about the same age as as um as the actor that's playing that that's playing him now. Yes, um, yes. I keep I keep blanking on his name. John Wesley Ship. John Wesley yeah. Ship, yeah. And um, ever since they started the Flash as a TV series, I've been wanting John Wesley Ship to play to play Jay Garrett to play the Golden Age Flash. I've been he's, wanting that. He's he's even hinted that he may show up on Legends with the JSA introduced. So. Cool. Yeah, and, and may I say, having not read the comics, so having to do a, a quick recce on the JSA and Our Man, that's going to be fun if they do it right. Well, they they already kind of did it in Smallville mm. for a couple of episodes, and and they were, they were really good episodes of Smallville. Um, you know, which kind of made up for the fact that all the other episodes were total shite. <laughs> You know, because I, 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 I was, I, you know, sorry, I'm not diplomatic when it comes to Smallville. I actually hated the series. I only, I only watched the first season and a, and a smattering of episodes after that. Mm. That was about it. And yeah, it was just way, way too soapy. It's because of Smallville that the that the current run of superhero shows are the way they are. You realize that. I realise that, but the current run of superhero shows are not quite as soapy as Smallville was. Although Arrow got pretty close. Yeah, Arrow did get pretty close with with the Felicity Smoke sort of thing and and all that. Um, I mean, to be honest, out of the DC shows that are on now, I think Arrow's kind of like become the weakest link. It is the weakest link, and that's a sad commentary considering it's the show that started it. But 
and, and maybe and maybe maybe part of the problem is the writers' hearts just aren't in writing non-powered superheroes anymore. Maybe they just don't care. Because <laughs> it seems like even even with its problems, Flash and Legends of Tomorrow seemed better written than Arrow this year. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's it's like they're because Flash and Legends of Tomorrow are the shows that allow the fanboys to be fanboys. Arrow are not quite the same way. Yeah, but Arrow's had, had some interesting cameos. I mean, we had um, Constantine at the beginning of the season. That was actually one of the better episodes. It was, and I'm hoping we see him on Legends at some point next season, if not on season three, if not season two. A lot will depend on Matt Ryan. I think I think they'll have to make it season two. You mean season three, because we're heading into season two with the JSA, so yeah. Yeah, what I'm saying is if, if one of yeah. the Legends of Tomorrow, it needs to be season two. Um. Yeah. Because, um, you know, Matt, Matt Ryan, I don't think he's going to be a talent that's going to be standing still for long. He could end up with a... He's the sort of actor that could end up with a regular series like that. Yeah. yeah I mean, as it is, they had to rearrange the Arrow production schedule to accommodate him. They ended up shooting his episode first and then going back and shooting the episode that preceded it. Mm-hmm. Cause it, was the only way to, it was the only way to arrange it around his schedule. But it's it's kind of obvious that 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 Flash is setting up for Flashpoint. Um, oh yeah, yeah. At this point, I'm not sure what Arrow's setting up for because they've kind of all gone their their separate ways again. Uh, as far as the flashbacks go, I think that they've set up for um, Oliver in Russia, and we learn how he becomes a member of the Bratva. I think what's what's going to happen relative to Flash um, is because they they can't afford with their inter- interconnected universe to have Flashpoint affect all of the shows. I think what they're going to do is Arrow will just simply take place in, in the timeline that after after Barry fixes it, mm-hmm. and then Flash will Flash will be Flashpoint, and Arrow will be the timeline after Barry fixes it. So yeah, um, and um, Agent uh, Legends of Tomorrow. Sorry, um, I'm I'm not sure where that's going to go because obviously their their villain is dead now. Yeah, um, we don't have Hartman and Hartgale anymore. I was kind of sad for them because they were good characters that were ruined with with the love triangle, and and this is what, this is what I wanted to discuss with with the CW DCU shows in general um, because there's the biggest problem is that that they're C, they're CW DCU shows they're saddled with these systemic triangles that drag down otherwise really good narrative, mm-hmm. and uh, it just it's not okay because the Hawks left alone would have been fine. Uh, Vandal Savage, if he hadn't have been tethered to the Hawks, would have been awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but because they did what they did, because they're CW, because they're the team network, or whatever, they, whatever rationale they think the rationale is, is 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 messing them up really, really badly. And as a result, uh, Legends wasn't as strong as it could have been. Although for a first season of a show that like, they had to wonder whether they could even do, I thought it was fairly solid. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. I mean, I've actually recently whizzed through all 16 episodes again over weekend because I, you know, it's, as you know, it's been a holiday here, so I've just mm-hmm. been taking full advantage while I can. Um, and, you know, upon second viewing, it's quite, it's still quite an enjoyable series. It, you know, it stands up. It does. It does. They're, they're doing a lot of really good stuff. They just need to, the, the CW basically just needs to get out of its own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these shows will improve markedly if they just do that. Uh, talking the, uh, of the CW shows, um, I don't know if you caught it. I'm not sure if you actually, because you did write a report um, on the finale of Flash and you, you did do, do a few, few articles for, for the site as, uh, right. 
uh, as things are winding down and based on what the producers were saying. But an article came out a few days after that I spotted and I was going to do something with it, but I just didn't get around to it. And that is that uh, CW has a plan to do a major crossover next year with all the shows. Which, which, means, which means we'll pro- probably be getting the TV version of Crisis, which should be fun. Yeah, well, oh, you know, you didn't let me finish. They're going to yeah. do Supergirl, isn't it? Yeah, Supergirl. Yeah, so, yeah. Which, Sorry. you know, which makes sense because she was in Crisis and Two Earths. Yeah. The the interesting point, though, is that both Barry and uh, Kara die at the end of Crisis as written. So they're going to be, obviously, they're going to be some changes. Mm. Yeah, well, Barry Bar- Barry dies, and um, I think Wongi West takes over from Barry Allen as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, maybe they've only got, uh, what's his name, uh, Gustin, Grant Gustin, yeah. for one more yeah. season, and then, then Wongi West is taking over. Maybe. maybe. I, I think if they were to do that with the TV series, king off the main character and have Wongi West take over, I think that would be awesome. It would. I don't know if I don't know if the marketing people would be that brave, though. You don't think they'd have the balls to do it? I, not the CW. If it were another network, yes. The CW, I don't think so. Because the the, the way they brought Barry Angham back into the comics uh, was, you know, basically they, they basically made the excuse that he got trapped in the Speed Force for years and then, and that's how they brought him back. Or they, or they could do an abbreviated version of that where he's trapped in the Speed Force for, you know, uh, a limited, limited arc. Yeah. yeah, maybe half a season. Maybe half a season. Maybe time it to coincide with other stuff that's going on with, in Grant Gustin's life or something. I don't know. You know maybe, maybe bring him back and bring him back with his powers utterly and you know completely and utterly depleted. So the second half of the season, you know, we still have Wally West carrying most of the weight while he's while he's trying to figure out how to how to get his strength and his powers back. Yeah, yeah. Um, which. You know, because let's face it, he got his powers back in the last series way too easily. It was like a two-episode arc done. <laughs> yeah, but then I, I was also annoyed with how he gave them up in the first place. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was kind of game. <laughs> you know? um, but you know, um, they, they they needed some sort of plot device, and I guess that was it. My my biggest problem with all of the DC CW shows is the twenty-three episode season needs to go away. Because all of all of the arcs just ran for too damn long. You know, they I, dragged. I think that's actually what worked in uh, in, in in the favor of Legends of Tomorrow in, in that it was only sixteen episodes. Yes, and you know that sixteen weeks went by pretty damn quickly. Yes, it did. You know, and um, but it was enjoyable. Yes, it was. Whereas you're right, they they, they did drag um, dragged more so on Arrow than than they did on Flash. Well, that's because Arrow this season had to prop up so much of Legends, so it was a double-edged sword. But um, the sad thing is, I actually enjoyed the the episodes where they had where they had to prop up Legends more than the main episodes of Arrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and they people are complaining that they have too much too many powers and too much magic on Arrow. And for a segment of the audience that I represent, that's part of the only reason I even made it through season four because otherwise it would have been just. Beyond tedious. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the I thought the magic was a was an interesting element, and um, and you know that's the only thing that kept me watching as well. Um, I didn't especially like the flashback sequences. Nobody does. And, they need to go. But away. They just need to stop doing them. 
But you know, obviously they're not going to stop doing them because they 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 kind they've kind of settled more flashback sequences for next year. Yes. So you know, um, maybe may, maybe we should just all boycott watching Arrow for one episode and see what happens. Mm. You know, get 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 an organised campaign amongst all the Arrow fans and say, you know, don't watch it for a week. <laughs> it's not realistic. You know, don't watch it for yeah. a week, sort of thing. But it, it, it's not going to happen. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sticking with it not because I like Arrow, but because. And here's the thing, you know, I've been reviewing the the comic that John Barrowman and his sister wrote for Arrow as a tie-in about mm-hmm. Dark Archer. The storyline of that comic uh, was better for the Dark Archer character than all of the season has been for him. Doesn't surprise me. And that doesn't surprise me in the least bit. And we've still got two issues of that to go, which I'm actually thankful for, because that's one of the elements of the season I've actually enjoyed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the 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 fact is, you know, this Dark Archer character has actually proved once and for all that Barrowman can act. Yes. Because there was a lot of people that were quite critical of him because he was playing, he was always playing the very, very camp Captain Jack. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people thought that he could only do camp. Well, you know, obviously um, he, he's, he's, um, he can do a bit better than camp. Yeah. And, yeah. and and when they write to him all the way they did in the first couple of seasons, it's awesome. But he's he's floundered re- recently, and uh, a lot a lot of people, as much as they love Barrowman, are seriously wondering what the hell they're even doing with the character. Because mm-hmm. uh, when because when the tie in when the when the tie in comic written by the actor and his sister is better than that actor's storyline in the in the show itself, things have officially gone wrong. Yeah, and it's kind it's kind of gotten weird as well because the. Uh... You know, because they kind of made him uh, Ras al Ghul. And yes. They, and they, they took that away from him. Then they took his hand away from him in, and, and in the, um, in, in, in the um, episode where Oggy takes his hand off and strips him of Ras al Ghul and all that bullshit. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're just trying to get rid of the, all the League storylines, which annoys, annoys me for another reason, because Nissa is one of my favourite recurring characters. Yeah, and you know they they should have just kept the league storylines going, kept them bubbling over. Yeah, um, you know because they 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 do that in the comics. They don't they don't sort of mess around with the uh, with 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 the um, with, with the league storylines too much in the comics. They kind of keep them ongoing. They're, they're thanks, always... thanks to thanks to the fact that Rip Hunter did his his Time Masters Masters thesis on League, mm-hmm. they may be able to justify an ongoing storyline one of these seasons that actually just covers all of the races. Yep, we, we just meet them all in sequence through time travel. Yeah, that could be the next season of Legends of Tomorrow. It could. Um, moving away from DC verse now um, to Agent Carter, as as you know, it's been cancelled. I'm. I actually like that show better than Agents of Shield, so I'm actually annoyed. I mean, yes, it structurally had some problems, but even with the problems, it was better than Agents of Shield. Mm. Well, we've known it's been cancelled officially now for about two. Is it two, three weeks? Something, Something like, like that. that, yeah. Um, although we kind of knew after the series ended, yeah, because there, there was a there was quite a strong rumor going around, and uh, Hengi Atwell was auditioning for other roles as well, which was kind of an indicator. Um, not that she wouldn't have auditioned for other roles, but you know, 
the fact that the song like uh, roles that would have taken taken time up for a full season of television. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's telling that the role she got is on another ABC show. So I'm wondering if they gave it to her in part because a she could play it, but b they needed to fill her contract. Something possibly, um, yeah, but. Um, it's been cancelled, but apparently at um, the London MCM comic book uh, convention this weekend, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, Dominic Cooper was speaking to the audience, and he was actually asked by a fan if if he could actually see uh, Agent Carter being con- continued and picked up by Amazon. Mm. And he he saw like he kind of urges Amazon to pick it up in in in, in his response, but he says that there are there, there are actually talks going on. With with the various um, streaming media services, so there may be hope for it yet. There's also a petition online by Change.org, um, which has over a hundred thirteen thousand signatures for uh-huh. for Netflix to pick up Agent Carter. Um, yeah, I'm kind of torn because I'm I can only afford one streaming service, and it's going to have to be the CBS one for Star Trek next year. Mm, <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, you know, so like. Um, People that can't afford streaming services, they they kind of do the uh, do the naughty thing getaway, don't they? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to be naughty, I think, because I can only afford one streaming service, and it's not going to be the one that's got Agent Carter on it, unfortunately. Oh, it's it's kind of um, it's it's kind of up in the air. We we might see it come back. It we might not at, at this yeah. point. I'd personally love to see it coming back, and I'd love to see it come back and do a stronger season than they've just than they've just done. Because mm-hmm. there was quite yeah. a few problems with this season. Yeah. Um, had a great villain and, 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 and stuff, but it was just sort of like uh, some really stupid things happened with the characters sort of thing in the, in the finale. It was sort of like the, oh, let's push the reset button. Yeah. <laughs> and put yeah. everyone back in their box. And, uh, you know, the, the FBI, the, the, the agent that, that heads up um, Agent the, Carter's... Yeah, the... Uh, the, the um... SSR, yeah. Yeah, the SSR, you know, just when you think he may have learned his lesson, he, 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 he reverts back to old form. Uh-huh. So there's absolutely no character evolution for him at all over the period of two seasons. No. You know, it, can't, it doesn't make sense because in that first season episode where he was out with Howling Commandos and pretty much admitted to Agent Carter that that, that he, he, he was a coward and, and this, this and that, and yeah. um, respected the bloody um, hangout of her because of her connection to the Howling Commandos and, and because he'd seen her in action there and then. And then yeah. all of a sudden he's, 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 back in, he's back in command and back at home base. He's sort of like, um, he's reverted to old form. Yeah, of, no. Of, of her or, uh-huh. or trying to. It, it's all like, it's, it's stuff like that just doesn't cut it really no and, and the whole finale um of of uh peggy versus madam mask you know it should have been more mono a mono because of the two women and instead it sort of just got diluted mm-hmm. so i'm hoping if they bring it back and netflix does does go for it um that they that, that they they go for it and um they they saw like uh give give the writing staff um a kick up the butt yeah a yeah. little bit um, not not that I'm not that I'm having a go at Brandon uh, Brandon um, about that because um, he actually wrote one of the stronger episodes of the season mm. from 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 what I remember <laughs> <laughs> from from speaking to him in conversation. 
um, which is probably a pretty nice segue for, for, for that now. Um, so I'm going to hand over to the interview now. Um, so I'm handing over to Julian Chambliss uh, and myself um, with, with Brendan Easton, um, where we talk about Agent Carter and a whole lot of other things as well. Hello, um, I'd like to um, welcome Julian Chambliss back, who's got a very special guest, Brandon uh, Easton, um, for the second episode of Beyond Impossible. So, over to you, Julian. Thanks, Ian. Uh, thanks a lot for checking us out again. My name is Julian Chambliss, and I am indeed here for Beyond Impossible, which is a sort of um, interview series that looks at what happens when people of color imagine in the public sphere. The title suggests that this is a shocking thing, and of course, it's beyond the impossible. So I'm really happy to have the opportunity to speak with Brandon Easton, who is a writer with credits in comics, television, also a documentarian. Uh, Brandon is also, of course, uh, one of those standout voices in um, geek culture, especially around geek, uh, those spaces where you find uh, geeks of color, talking about the need for diversity. So this is a rare opportunity for us to sort of interact with him. And Brandon, of course, is, is well known for his uh, his two blogs. He, I think he has two blogs here. He has the Fool's Crusade. He also has uh, the two Brandons. Mm-hmm. Um, and writing for Rookies, that's three blogs, actually, <laughs> um, where he talks about the business of being a writer. Um, his background is a, is a uh, sort of instructive for those of you who want to be writers, but also really he does get, dig into this question of diversity. So I'm really happy to get a chance to talk to him for Sci-Fi Pulse now. Um, so, Brandon, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I think first and foremost, the most recent news from, from you is, of course, that you've been named as the writer for a new project based on the Mask animated series. Yeah. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about that because I know I, I watched Mask and I'm kind of excited about this, this series. So, uh, but can you tell us a little bit about that project, and then we'll talk a little bit about, about your, some of your other your other uh, projects. Well, sure. Mask is, of course, uh, based on the uh, Mobile Armored Strike Command um, animated series from the late '80s. Uh, it was a very popular show that didn't last very long. I think it lasted maybe two or three seasons, maybe four, but it didn't play everywhere. Because I remember growing up in Baltimore, it played for about two seasons and then it disappeared. But I heard they had a couple of more, but I never saw it. So Mask is best described as a cross between Transformers and G.I. Joe in in a way. It's like a military unit with uh, vehicles that convert from one format to another, usually from a car or boat or plane to a different type, type of weapon. And IDW is uh, going to be releasing a reboot or reimagining series that I'm going to be writing. And I don't know when the release date is. I think it's going to be sometime in the early fall of 2016. But we're well on the way of development, of developing it. And uh, things are going really well. I mean, I just uh, spoke to my editor today and things are going very well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how the uh, audience and readers, readership uh, you know, responds to it. And is this an ongoing series or a miniseries? It is an ongoing series. It is planned for 
God willing, we, we should have, we, we, we hope we get a long, uninterrupted run out of God willing. Well, I, I, I wanted to start there in part because I think it's it, it, your your work as a creator uh, in genre entertainment, uh, which is a broad label, I understand, but it's a good way to describe you as a writer. Um, you've written a lot of uh, works for big employers. You've worked for the Cartoon Network. You were a writer on the Thundercats animated series from a couple of years back. Um, but you probably, at least from my mind, uh, really sort of distinguish yourself as a person who talks about the, the travails and the struggles and what you need to do to be a creative, a, a creative color to sort of work in the genre field. Mm-hmm. And this is part of the reason I wanted to talk to you. So, you know, you've been thinking about this for a while. And so I guess one question I would have for you in this vein is like, well, what's the state of the field right now for people of color? Well, the, the trick is this, and I talk about this a lot at panels at Comic-Con and WonderCon and all these big spots. It's not so much about people of color as much as it is about being a well-rounded and high-quality writer. Because first and foremost, what's on the page is all that ultimately matters. And you could be whatever, you know, because like the thing is with a lot of folks with writing, it's, it, it's somewhat subjective, but really bad writing. Anybody can tell. It doesn't matter who wrote it. If it's bad, it's bad. The, the struggle comes in or activates in, in, in a sense is when you are a quality writer, you've gotten to a certain point and for whatever reason, you can't get to the next level. And that's where things get complicated because in some cases, uh, if it's getting employed by a larger company, let's say if you're talking about comic books, you know, people have to hire you. And right. there's usually a variety of metrics that determine whether or not you get hired. In TV, it's even more complicated. In film, even more complicated. There's so many factors at play. And a lot of these factors are hidden behind closed doors. And to the average viewer or the average fan, they have no idea how the business actually operates. So in general, I would say for a writer of color who is a quality uh, is a quality creator, then things I think are much better than they were 20 years ago. They may be better than they were 10 years ago. Uh, I think that there's a there's an increased demand and wrecking, uh, you know, realization that there's an audience that people can make money from. And I want to make it clear that I don't think there's any altruism out there in the world in regards to increasing diversity. It really has to do with the fact that the market has determined that there's money to be made by and from people of color and women and, uh, you know, uh, gay and lesbian and transgender communities. I mean, people spend money. And the thing is, if you continually ignore very large swaths of the potential marketplace, that's not good business. You know, um, for all the flack that Tyler Perry uh, takes, and some of it is well-deserved, not all of it, I would say, but Tyler Perry showed that ignoring certain markets is a horrible idea. And Tyler Perry activated or recognized the Southern black female church going community. And he targeted them and gave them, I guess, in some cases, everything they wanted. And he built an entire empire off right. of that community. So it, in a lot of ways, there's unlimited potential for anybody to break in. But you have to also hustle. You have to become you know, aware of how the industry operates. You have to. And then, of course, you have to have quality material. You have to have a social media presence. There are so many factors in place for writers to break through or to, in order to break through that. It's not just an easy answer about people of color, because I think that, you know, if you're a, a, a person of color and you're a writer or if you're a woman, you're a writer or whoever, you know, even if you're white and male, you still have to go through certain things to get from point A to point B. I just think that when you get to a certain level, and based on my observation, when you get to a certain point, 
then issues like race, class, and gender can definitely kick in. Mm-hmm. And, but that's a little bit further down the line. And just to right. interject real quickly here is, um, you know, personally, um, as someone who reads a lot of different stuff, um, I, 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 I never really go out of my way to find out what cognitive person is that's written, written right. what I'm reading. Right. So like, it's kind of like good writing is good writing. If, if someone's telling a good story, I'm going to read it. Um, right. And the funny thing is, um, and you know, Alexander Dumas was black. Yeah. I, I never actually knew that until I actually seen a photograph of Alexander Dumas. And you know, by that point, I'd actually read a lot of his stuff anyway. So, which is all great stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> Brandon, one of the things that I think, uh, whenever you talk about um, this question of, of success and access, um, is that you often do make this, this important point about preparation and mm-hmm. activation, right? So yes. your own personal background is a testament to some of the most you know, sort of basic work in terms of uh, preparation. You have a MFA from Boston University. You yes. spent a lot of years sort of like working your way up. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily, you're like a journey person, right? Like you had one job and got another job right. uh, and so forth. And uh, eventually creating your own your own graphic novel, Shadow Law, which you, you wrote, and I think you talked about it being a, the first idea was a screenplay, and then mm-hmm. you got into a, a, a comic book. Um, that whole process took a while, um, uh, I think several years for you. Um, when you were in that process, what were some of the best sort of advice that you got in terms of like moving along the way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, that's a lot of that. Uh... Well, I would say the first bit of advice I got is to finish what you start. Uh, One of the things I often open my panels with at all these conventions is that the literary marketplace is littered with the corpses of half-completed manuscripts. And it's like, if you don't finish what you start, then you don't have a product. And then when you finish it, you have to rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and make sure it's, it's properly vetted before you even try to put it on the marketplace. So the first bit of advice was to finish what I started. Also, um, the, the, the advice will vary because when I was doing comics, uh, it took me almost eight years to finish Shadow Law because I hired and fired, you know, six different art teams along the way. And a lot of it has to do with just the reality of working really hard and right. never giving up. And people will not support you. And one of the things I learned is that people absolutely do not care. Nobody gives a crap about you. No one cares who you are, where you come from, what you're doing. People only care once you start to get a portfolio of projects done and on the marketplace, things that people have actually heard of. Uh, it's it's a hard thing because sometimes it takes luck. And for some people, it never happens. You know, you just don't know. Uh, one of the best examples I'll give of this is Andy Weir, who wrote, you know, The, the Martian, which was a, a self-published novel that eventually got picked up by a publisher and eventually got an option for a major uh, multi-million dollar uh, blockbuster film. You know, that was nominated for, I believe, a Golden Globe, won a Golden Globe, and I think it was nominated for Academy Awards. So, uh the message basically is that you've got to just keep moving forward and never stopping and realizing that generally speaking, there will be no safety net and there will be no support network. People, you know, for whatever reason, literally will not care about you because they are marketed too heavily, you know, from Hollywood and, you know, Madison Avenue, you know, the the big publishers in New York and so forth and so on. So if you're a self-publisher or if you're trying to do an independent comic and and you're not Marvel and DC or even Dark Horse or IDW or anybody, then, you know, you have to realize that it's going to take time before you manage to get any kind of uh, leverage in the marketplace, any type of foothold, any grasp. 
It takes a while. So it's a long game. And it took me a while to realize that it was a long game. And I was very fortunate to meet a variety of creators over the years who gave me amazing advice, like people like Joe Illich and uh, Jeffrey Thorne and uh, many others, John Semper. Uh, just lots of brothers I've met who were you know, very open and willing to share information about how the industry operates. And that's what I really needed. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting that sort of points out what you talk about them, you know, uh, as a my own concern with comics, I've noticed that over the over the years that the big publishers, especially Marvel and DC, do not hire writers who haven't already published right. something independent. Sometimes several something's independent on their own, right? So they they kind of only publish people who've already sort of published, um, and, and so that's a small cadre of people that work for those companies. But then there's a whole sort of independent world. And I think one of the things that's also uh, interesting about about some of your work is that you've sort of gone from the independent to the corporate world. Um, and especially right. in the last few years, another big project that you completed recently is that you wrote the autobiography of Andre the Giant, I believe. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that that project? Uh, sure. Uh, that was something that was uh, that was done by Lionforge. It was published by uh, IDW. Um, when I, I got hired by Lion Forge back in, I believe it was 2012 or 2013. I think it was 2012. And they had a couple of uh, projects. Uh, I signed a, like a six book deal with them to produce six okay. graphic novels. Okay. And one of the early projects that came through was a potential biography of uh, Randy Macho Man Savage. Oh, wow. Now, the backstory of this is the fact that, you know, I'm from Baltimore and being a wrestling fan in Baltimore back in the 80s, especially, you had access to pretty much all the major, because of Maryland's geographic location, right. you had access to many different wrestling territories. So if you were in the Northeast, you only had WWF. If you were in the South, you only had Jim Crockett promotions, NWA, or the Mid-South, or the Memphis Territory, or the Georgia, or Florida. I mean, it was all this NWA stuff all over the country. And then in the Northern States, it was WWF. Right. But being in Maryland, I had access to all of that. So it, it really worked out. So I, I had a, a very strong background of knowledge about professionalism. So I could have written a Randy Savage uh, biography just off of what I know without even having to consult you know, his family too much. But then that project fell through. And the second one on the list was Andre the Giant. And so, you know, Andre's real name was Andre Rusimov. And uh, we found uh, the Rusimov estate. We tracked down his uh, lawyer. Well, they did, I should say. And we, then we tracked down his daughter, Robin. And uh, she has an incredible story. Her, I mean, it's an amazing story that she has. It's, it's, it's insane. And But in a good way, not in a horrible way. But she had a really incredible childhood. As there was some tragedy there. But generally speaking, she has a really amazing stories to tell. So I had access to stories and background information about Andre that literally no one else had ever heard of ever. So with that said, um, I got the chance to work on it. It took me a year to write the script because I had never written a nonfiction graphic novel before. And I had definitely not written any, anything about someone's life. So uh, it, it, it was a hell of a it was a hell of a process, but it came out very well. I was very impressed with the art. I mean, Dennis Medry is one of the best artists I've ever worked with. Period, and uh, it was it was a great experience. And um, I'm very happy with how it came out, and I'm very happy with how it was received by the audience. So that's you know, that's that one. 
Is is that actually available on trade? Yeah, it's been out for since November. It's been um, it's on Amazon. Yeah, I've got, got Barnes and Noble too as well. I've got to grab that because I've seen a really interesting documentary about Andre the Giant a few years back. You know, such character. Mm, right, you say that again. <laughs> so your relationship with uh, Lion Forge sort of got a lot of attention uh, when it first sort of debuted as a sort of minority-owned mm-hmm. uh, comic company, and they sort of forged a deal, I believe, with Universal Entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, NBC um, Universal. Right. NBC Universal. So they've been licensing properties. I've read the Miami Vice comic and their Airwolf comic, which I, I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have anything else coming out from them? No, what happened is um, I did Rowboy for them. I did a series called uh, The Joshua Run, which was co-created by a comedian actor, uh, Flex Alexander. Right. Um, there, there, were, there were two other projects that were written, but not. I don't know what they're going to do with them, but um, I pretty much fulfilled my contract, so okay. I'm not really going. I mean, I mean, I'm still on good terms with them, but I have nothing uh, hedged with them in the in the short term. So you know, it's great, but yeah, I've moved on since then, and they're doing great too. So everything's good. I know that one of your major projects in the last couple of years was the, the creation of a documentary called Brave New Souls. Which yeah, Brave New Souls. Uh, uh, sort of. Again, your sort of personal investigation of um, many things you've been talking about here with us today, like you know, black creators, their experiences working in in sort of creative field. Um, tell us a little bit about that project, and are you planning a follow up documentary? Well, good question. Okay, um, I'll start with the the background of why I even did it. Uh, <laughs> and you were the you know, sole person doing this, by the way. Let's, let's make well, that. The, well, okay. Yeah, we're going to get into all that. Uh, basically, what happened was I had become very, very disheartened and, quite frankly, pissed off with a large contingent of the black geek community, online especially, not so much the community, but the online community, who would just never stop complaining about anything. <laughs> and my problem is that I don't think you can continually ask white people or any non-black creators to tell a story about blacks. You know, like, I, I, don't, I, I mean, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean it in the sense that I'm not going to expect someone else to tell my story. It doesn't make sense. Like, I'm not a woman. And I try to write <laughs> balanced human women characters. But there are things about being a woman I'm not going to get. And it doesn't, and like, and if, and if a bunch of women were mad at me because I wasn't writing enough women stuff, I'd be like, well, there are women authors out there. You know, <laughs> you know, like maybe you should support them. I mean, cause I, I can't tell the story that you want me to tell. So what was making me angry was that there were all these geeks online who were constantly mad about Marvel and DC and this person and this show and that. Meanwhile, there's all these creators of color who put on, who put out their own material. Some of it's self-published, some of it is, you know, mainstream published. There are uh, writers, there's comic book people, there's TV people, there's film people. And for whatever reason, these geeks were not paying attention to these creators. And I'm like, well, while you're complaining about what these people aren't doing for you, here's this massive population of creators of color who are doing what you're asking for and you're not supporting. And what made it even worse is that once they were made aware of these people, they still reverted back to complaining about what Marvel and DC weren't doing for and so forth and so on. And that infuriated me more than anything else. So, um, So then I... I decided to put out a call to all the creators of color I knew in the LA area initially because I quite frankly was broken starving at the time and I took every and I'm, I'm not kidding like I, I took every red cent I had and I didn't have a lot of money to you know I, I bought a camera I borrowed production equipment like lights and I bought a sound like sound record digital sound record I bought all I spent I spent all the money I had I was working like two and a half jobs at the time 
I mean, I did this myself. I had a lot of people say that they were going to show up. I had a lot of people say they were going to be interviewed, only to have about 40% of them drop out. And then all the people who said they were going to help me with production just never showed up. So I wound up having to hang the lights, light the thing, record sound, and operate the camera all by myself. And that's okay. That's, it's the nature of the game. I'm not going to complain about it. I did what I had to do. But then, you know, as I was producing this, there were people all over the country bitching and complaining that I didn't fly to them and interview them because aren't they black writers too, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and I'm man. like, well, you know, guess what? You know, you son of a bitch. Why don't you pay for me to come out? You know, I can't afford it, you know? So luckily during this time, I was on a tour with Lion Forge, who, was, who are based in St. Louis. So I, I was flown to St. Louis and then we went from St. Louis up to Chicago for, uh, for Wizard World. Oh, back wow. in 2013. And so I was able to record uh, creators in Chicago. And then I went back home to the East Coast, which is New York and Baltimore. And I was able to connect with creators there, too. So I was able to get across country, luckily, because I just happened to be on tour with Lion Forge. But all this was fortuitous for me. And I wound up recording and you know getting everything. And the only real negative that I have, and it's only one major regret, was that I wasn't there when the guy was editing the material together. Oh, so okay. he, he left out so much incredible material. And, and the thing is, I was busy. I could only afford an editor that I could afford, and you get what you pay for. And this guy left out so much. And I would like to someday, to answer the second question, go back and do a, a re-edit of what I already had. Because okay. it was just an amazing amount of material that was left out. I don't know why I was left out. I don't know what he was seeing, because I gave him a script. But he left out so much material. And uh, I regret that because it didn't come out visually the way I had planned. But I did at least get these people's voices into the ether. I got it into the world. And that's what I'm most proud of. Well, and I think that documentary did, did sort of inspire a lot of like dialogue about black creators. Actually, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. um, and and in, in a lot of ways, you know, since you've, you've been on quite a streak, and I don't I don't want to um, talk exclusively about the past because, in fact, you know, this last year you had a lot of success. You were chosen as one of the writers for the ABC uh, Writer Program, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you wrote for Marvel's Agent Carter. Absolutely. Right. So mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that. We call it Agent Carter in the UK, by the way. Agent Carter, I like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, okay. Um, America. <laughs> well, okay, I'll start at the beginning. Um, well, the ABC writing program is something that's done by the Disney ABC Corporation to identify writers who, you know, quite frankly, did not get the uh, attention they deserve or need that next bump to become uh, known to the Hollywood community. So, uh, any every year, anywhere between fifteen hundred to three thousand people apply, and there's only eight slots. So I applied, and I got I was one of the eight chosen, and you know that kind of blew me away because I needed that. I mean, I can tell you, 2014 was not a good year for me, and I had no idea what 2015 was going to be. You know what was going to what 2015 had to you know had in store for me if I didn't get into the ABC writing program. So it was literally a lifesaver, and I, and I'm, I, don't, I don't say that as a, a euphemism. I mean, I really mean it saved my life because I don't know what I would have done because I had no money coming in, and a lot of things just weren't going well for me. So with that said, you get into the program and you are, you know, you meet, you get mentors, you have like basically what amounts to a series of classes and interviews internally where you learn the structure of ABC, you learn what sh how the shows are made and so forth and, and developed. 
then um, you are assigned uh, producer mentors who are working on shows currently under the Disney ABC umbrella, which includes a lot of things. It's not just ABC. You have right. the Freeform Channel. You have Disney XD. You have the Disney Channel. You have Disney Kids. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that ABC owns uh, and, and create and, and controls. So uh, it turns out that my mentor was the one of the executive producers and showrunners of Agent Carter. And, you know, so I got to know her very well and her producer partner. Um, it, it, uh, my mentor is Michelle Fazekas and her producing partner is uh, Tyra Butters. And uh, there was another guy named Chris Dingus who was also one of the showrunners. And um, it was a it was it was a great experience. It was my first uh, one hour live action network experience. Um, it was just one of the things that I had to uh, you know experience. It something, it's one of those things like you, you're never going to understand how to work on a TV show or what a TV show working environment is like until you actually do it. There's absolutely no way to describe it. It is a experience that must be lived. So no matter what I thought about how TV works, I didn't really, I was completely ignorant until I actually got on Agent Carter and I got an episode. I wrote episode seven right. and staff writers, first time staff writers don't usually get scripts, but I actually got one and um, that blew my mind. And it was just a transcendental experience for me. And, and, and it, it, it altered the way I um, thought about, think about the industry and think about my own career and also think about how to write for TV. Because once you're actually in a room and the constraints of budget and reality step in, then you start to understand how to write better for television. Um, are you currently in the mix and under consideration for anything else with ABC? Well, through the program, I was able to secure representation. I have agents and I have a manager now, which okay. we need to move to the next level in Hollywood. Very few people can do it without representation. Sure. You know, every year somebody gets in and don't have, doesn't have an agent, then they realize very quickly that they're never going to work again until they get one. So um, my agents and managers have sent me on a ton of meetings at a bunch of production companies and, and networks and studios. So I'll probably know what show I'll end up on before the end of May or end of this month. So cool. probably the next three weeks, I, I hopefully, hopefully I'll have it announced. I'm just wondering, Brandon, is, is there actually a show, if you had your druthers, is there a show out there that you'd love to actually be a writer on? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of them. I mean, uh, I would love to write for any... Uh, Arrow. Well, Arrow is my favorite show, so I would love to work really? for Arrow. Arrow is your favorite show, okay. It is my favorite show, absolutely. I love Arrow. I, I, think, Arrow. That, yeah. I think that it is, for what it is, and for some of the imagery they've put on television, particularly of African-Americans, I'm right. very stunned by how progressive that show has been. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy it. I, I mean, and particularly after working on a TV show, to see what they're able to accomplish every week with the budget that they have. It's right. absolutely astounding how good that show looks. It comes off, particularly the stunt team. It's a, it's, a, it's amazing work they do. So, I mean, I would love to work on Arrow, Flash, Legends of Tomorrow. I mean, that would really be my, like, you know, bread and butter. Uh, the new Star Trek show is a dream, but it's already, they're already in production. Uh, Game of Thrones, same thing, but that's already in production. Um, that writer's room is pretty much locked. Um, uh, I'm trying to think what other shows I really would love to work on. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of pilots that have not been you know released yet, obviously. But there's a couple of pilots I read that I really like, and I really hope that I can get a, a, a interview for that show. So we'll see how it plays out. Well, well just, if I'm not just, mistaken, you actually wrote a spec script for Arrow. Didn't you? That's yeah, I wrote a spec. Well, they'll they'll never read that, but that's how I got into the ABC program because you have to write a spec and a pilot. Wow! And the spec okay. that I chose was um, Arrow, and that got me into the program. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, talk, talking about Arrow for a second, that was really gooded, gooded, gooded for uh, for Diggle in the most recent episode. I have not um, seen it, really, so please 
I, I'm not saying anything else, but it's it's yeah, ringy, it's ringy, ringy sad. It was really good though. <laughs> you should see it so you can. Um, well, you know the 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 this success that you've had in the mainstream. Um, doesn't uh, overshadow the success that you arguably had in sort of the indie field. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. You had a lot of success. You were uh, won the 2013 um, Best Writer for the Glyph Awards. And you did a great episode of um, a great issue of Watson and Holmes. Yeah, that was Eisner nominated. And I nominated a standout um, sort of a black and reinterpretation of Sherlock Holmes and Watson's story. Um, do you have anything else in that line that you have in development um, that you've been talking um, about? I'm trying to think. Well, other than Mask, I mean, Mask is going to take up a whole lot of time. Um, okay. You know, so in terms of independent stuff, that, right. you know, the last, you know, I guess Andre the Giant would be the last big independent thing I did. I have a story coming out from Marvel Comics in their Civil War II uh, summer right. storyline. But, but beyond that, um, the math stuff is huge and it's all encompassing. And between that and whatever TV show, hopefully I end up on, you know, my time is going to be pretty shut down. Oh, really? You're, 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 you're sort of locked down with those two things. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean, if you're in a writer's room, you're you're in a writer's room anywhere between eight to you know, ten hours, sometimes twelve hours a day, wow. five days a week. I mean, that's that's TV writing. And then if you are covering set, you know, meaning like you know, you're the writer on set to make sure everything's cool. Uh, then you're talking about easily fifteen to twenty hour a day shoot. I mean, that's just the way it works. So, wow. so uh, comic book, like you know, I, I told all my editors and stuff. You know, I have time to write comics, but you know, once the TV show thing is in there, I I have a very specific schedule about how I write and when I write. So even if I'm working on a TV show, I'll still have time to do comic books because I, I set up my schedule that way. Okay. But I can't be doing a lot of independent work that's not going to be financially rewarding or even creatively rewarding. You know, it has to be something that's worth my time that's particularly at this point in my career going to elevate me to a, a, a different place career-wise and perception-wise and marketplace-wise. Right. So you are, uh, I think, arguably on a, an upward trajectory and, and you, you've been, I think, arguably pretty successful um, and you've pretty been pretty consistent sort of talking to people who want to get into a writing game about what they should do. Is that, is your advice staying the same? Where would you direct people in terms of like, should they, should they just read your, your old blog? Like, you know, that, that, that information is evergreen as they say, or are things changing a lot in media and, and people need to be ever ever on the watch for, for new opportunities. I mean what's the landscape for what look like for people now? Well I mean it kinda harkens back to our to the first question. I mean I don't think my advice would change any because if you're starting out, the advice I would give at a middle level will not won't be applicable. You know, it, you know, everything I, you know, all the early stuff that I've written still applies. You know, I, I would say the only thing that's really going to change is the kind of technology that's out there that will allow your work to proliferate. You know, right now, I just say, you know, continue writing. And as you know, virtual reality is the next big um, uh, landscape or frontier for storytelling. And Hollywood and video games and uh, the motion picture theater, you know, industry itself, they're dumping millions of dollars into research of virtual reality as we speak. So I would say that in terms of just creating, my general advice will remain the same. But if you're looking toward future ways of getting your story out there, I would say for people to probably look toward virtual reality because it's already becoming a market force in a very small mm -hmm. way. But um, it's not really going to become a ubiquitous thing until probably 2025. 
Um, how important is it for us to sort of like narrativize that that transformation in terms of like representation in this mainstream media? Okay. Well, I'll give you a story from my time on Agent Carter. Um, in season two of Agent Carter, uh, ha- uh, Haley, I was, uh, Agent Car- Peggy's uh, love interest, or sort of love interest, is African-American man named Dr. Wilkes. He's a yeah. you know, prom- prominent member of the, um, of the cast. He's a prominent member. His storyline is very important to season two. Now, um, it's 1947 in Los Angeles, which L.A., which I live in, is a very segregated place now. It's a very segregated place then. And I wanted to, at the very least, deal with the fact that he was a black guy in 1947 who was a scientist. But, you know, we, you couldn't pretend that certain things weren't going on. And I think that our staff did a really great job of pointing out the subtle and not so subtle racism of 1947 L.A., now, when we get to my episode, which is episode seven, titled Monsters, there's a scene in the, in the, I think in the fourth or fifth act where Whitney Frost, who's the villain, has a conversation about how being a woman and a man of color in 1947, you know, you have to hurt people. You have to be a villain to win because the whole society is against you. And I wrote that scene and much of, and pretty much that scene went through almost not rewritten because, you know, you know, sometimes your producers rewrite you or change things. But that scene came out pretty much exactly how I wrote it. And I think that having me there and having my own perspective help that scene and flesh it out to being a very powerful moment, at least in my opinion, a very powerful moment between characters who were marginalized in the real world at that time, and in some cases still are. So it's important to have people of color and women and gay and lesbian and transgender folks in the writer's room and creating stuff because there's, as I said before, there are stories that only the people, those people can tell, you know, and I'm not saying and people like, cause there's plenty of white men who have written great stories featuring black folks. I mean, you know, glory is one of them, for example, mm-hmm. you know, um, and there's, there's many other examples too, but I'm just saying that I think that if you have an African-American who has a tie to the transatlantic slave trade, they're going to, on certain aspects of that life, sort of like what Nate Parker is doing with the Birth of a Nation film coming out this fall, right. you know, or the WG, WGN series Underground, or the fact that they have black writers working on the new roots that History Channel is doing. I mean, I think that's really important, too. And like Empire, you know, for better or for worse, you know, they're, you know, that's a predominantly black writer's room. And they and even when they're crazy, like stupid stuff happens. You still get a kind of uh, authenticity to the world that I don't think would happen if you didn't have as many black writers on Empire, for example. And you know, and I'll never argue against representation because that's not what I'm doing. I mean, originally what I'm saying is if representation doesn't matter, if what you're writing sucks, you know, like if you're a black writer, it hurts everybody if your book sucks or if your script sucks. That doesn't help nobody. If it stinks, it's going to be another nail in the coffin of C. This is why we don't trust these people because they because they're not talented, you know. And right. me, that's what I'm getting. At. Yeah, yeah, I understand. But I think mean, my my comeback to that is yeah, but that only happens to people of color, right? Like when white writers. Well, well, but that's talk. not true. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, I, I know what you're getting at, but this is what I'm saying. There are, I mean, there's plenty of examples of crap being produced. But right. trust me when I say a lot of the movies that end up horrible, the scripts don't start out bad. It's because there's interference along the production and development of it. Because for, for, for a script to get optioned or purchased to begin with, it has to be on point. You know what I'm saying? And right. then what winds up happening <laughs> is that producers and executives and all these other people get involved and they corrupt the vision because of corporate interest. And then you wind up with something that just completely stinks. Now, I would not say that a lot of untalented white guys just get stuff handed to them. Even well, no, so-called... Un- no, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just throwing it out there because I'm, I'm, see, for me, what I'm getting at is that this, that there are plenty of black creators and that's right. why I did that documentary. That, like right. that, That's kind of my core point of all of this. 
Right. My other side of it is that representation is awesome because we need that, and which is why I've done what I've done. But what I'm what I'm getting at the under the underpinning is that you know if Spike Lee sucked with Do the Right Thing, if Do the Right Thing turned out to be a crappy movie, then that would have hurt black cinema. So Do the Right Thing had to be a goddamn near masterpiece. And, right. I, and I'm not saying it's, I mean personally, I think everything that comes out should be a masterpiece because it's not like Martin Scorsese sucks. You know, it's not like Spielberg. So, you know, like there are people who are have reached certain levels who reach those levels because they're awesome. I mean, people hate on Zack Snyder, but Zack Snyder's work before Sucker Punch was not bad. You know, get hated on. Like there's only one person out there, I think, does not deserve his station. I'm not going to say his name, but there's a director of movies and of music videos who came out of music videos, started making movies, usually jumping on the franchises after they've been started. And this person, I think, is completely untalented. And got in because he knew the right people. But oh, I would say about. right. But I would say that <laughs> I would say that generally speaking, a lot of the people who are working, I'd say eighty five percent of them across the board deserve to be there. You know, so I'm not saying that because I don't think mediocre black stuff should just be on the marketplace just because it adds to representation. Because no. I mean, I mean, I could say there are some mediocre black things on the marketplace that's doing very well. <laughs> particularly in music so i'm like no, you know, i mean and i and i know and i'm not suggesting that you are saying that i think right. my point is that when we talk about the consequences of failure for great it's negative connotation for the next creative color it's unfair that it's unfair right it is racial. i agree oh believe me i agree because <laughs> that's affected me too you know right. um if you look at all the self-published novels on amazon there's a reason why most of them will never end up with a major publisher and it's not because of racism or sexism or homophobia it's because it's horrible like i've spent a lot of time trying to support and identify high quality independent writers you know particularly of ebooks and i bet I've been aghast at like how in the first paragraph of the book, there's more grammatical errors in the first paragraph than are in some people's entire manuscripts. You know, I've seen that. And like, and, and, and that's very common. And this is across the board. This is not about race, but there's a lot of garbage out there. And, sure. and I don't I don't support garbage of any kind, regardless of who creates it. I, my whole point is that there's so much good quality stuff that's created by people of color that's not getting attention that we've got to start making space for that because that's what I'm upset about. Because when I realized myself, like I met, for example, I'll give you an example. I met two uh, black women science fiction authors, uh, N.K. Jemison and Nettie Okorafor, who I did not know existed until I started doing this. I mean, until I started making my documentary. And I, and I, and I found them. And these women would not have been nominated for Hugos and Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. And, and that's kind of my point, that there's people who are of... Uh, of sterling reputation and with sterling high level stuff that's not being not even being recognized yet um thanks for taking the time as oh, always no, no problem you have good insights i really appreciate this um any last words brandon in my documentary you know the full title is brave new souls black science fiction and fantasy writers of the 21st century it's uh it's available on amazon instant as a stream you can download it or just rent it um, also, I believe there's a website called africomics.com. I believe it's called that. And then there's another website called Black Science Fiction Society. And if you go to those, they also have a collection of so many people and links to how to support and links to websites and web pages of uh, creators of color. It, 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 those are really great resources that people can use to uh, educate themselves. Um, and again, we really appreciate you taking the time. Always really insightful information. 
And thanks for uh, taking the time to talk about uh, Black speculative genre entertainment and, and your perspective on the industry and uh, tell us a little about your projects. As always, really impressed by their hard work and wish you luck. Thank you very much. And again, I mean, anytime you need me for anything, just feel free to reach out. Hi, this is Tom O'Pennicott, and you're listening to the SFP Now podcast. And that about wraps things up for this week, folks. Um, we'll be back at you again in, um, in a couple of weeks' time, hopefully, with more interviews. Um, in the meantime, you might want to check out some of our older episodes at scififulseradio.com. Um, there you'll also find uh, an archive of episodes of, uh, of Matt's and Junie Pyle's uh, brilliant, f- fantastic show called Genretainment as well. Um, I'd like to thank Racer as always for, for helping out with the TV stuff and also Junian Chambliss and um, our special guest this week, Brandon Easton, for you know being a part of the show. Um, that's all for now. We'll see you next time. Bye.